Well, you know, Westwood, one of the things I'm so grateful for is how God reveals himself to us. He reveals himself through creation, through what he has made, things seen and unseen. In fact, in Psalm 19, verses 1 and 2, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day by day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. You see, creation is pointing us to the creator. And yet what we see in scripture is that God reveals himself specifically and personally and especially through his word. That we can know the will of God, we can know the character of God, we can know the thoughts of God by what he reveals in his word. You see, the Bible is not just a collection of a bunch of stories. The Bible is the story of God that is pointing to someone. You see, one of my personal heroes of the faith is Charles Spurgeon, a man that, who would preach to thousands of people. He became the pastor of his church in London at the age of 19 with a few hundred people gathered. And then at the end of his ministry, more than 20,000 people would come and hear him preach without technology or sound amplification. And he also had a pastor's college in which he trained young preachers. And one of the things he told a young pastor one day was this, don't you know, young man, that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, Wherever it may be, there is a road to London. So from every text in scripture, there is a road toward the great metropolis, Christ. And my dear brother, your business is when you get to a text to say, now what is the road to Christ? I have never found a text that had not got a road to Christ in it. And if ever I find one, I will go over hedge and ditch, but I would get to my master. For the sermon cannot do any good unless there is a savior of Christ in it. You see, preaching Christ from every passage of scripture is both a duty and a delight for me. I take great joy in studying the scriptures and seeing how all of the text is driving us to the person and work of Jesus. And as we're about to conclude the gospel of Mark, we meet him once again with, where he is encountering two disciples who are wandering away from Jerusalem discouraged and yet after they encounter Jesus they're bounding back to the holy city with joy let me show you grab your bible and turn with me to mark chapter 16 we're on the final lap of our study in the gospel of mark and our sermon series on the move as we have seen back in Mark chapter 15, the death and burial of Jesus, where Jesus goes to the cross and he dies in our place. He gives his life for the sins of the world. He's placed in Joseph's tomb where he is laid there at the conclusion of Mark chapter 15. Mark 16, we see Jesus who has risen again on the third day, that he has defeated death and so too will all who trust in him. We found these three women, Mary, Mary, and Salome, who are bounding away from the empty tomb, making a beeline to the disciples to tell them what they have seen and discovered. And what we find is at the end of Mark 16, verse 8, the gospel of Mark comes to a, a close. It concludes right there at verse 8. 
Now, a few weeks ago, we took some time to unpack verses 9 through 20 and the brackets around the text in which we've come to the conclusion either Mark may or may not have written. Now, whether he wrote it or not, we can have confidence in what is written because it is confirmed in other parts of Scripture. As we wrap up our study of Mark's gospel, we're going to be looking not only to Mark 16, but we're going to be cross-referencing this text with other New Testament passages that provide even greater clarity and detail than what we get in Mark's gospel. We saw last week how Jesus, the pastor theologian, he pursues the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. He is the Savior who draws near to his people. He counsels his people. He displays his power to his people. Mark gives us little detail, but notice what the text says in Mark 16, beginning with verse 12. The scripture says, after this, he appeared in a different form to two of them walking on their way into the country. And they went and reported it to the rest who did not believe them either. And just like last week, we're going to pivot over to Luke 24 to see what Dr. Luke tells us about this encounter that Jesus has with these two men on the Emmaus Road. In Luke 24, beginning with verse 13, the scripture says this. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that happened there in these days? What things, he asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. And we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He said to them, how foolish and slow you are to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. It was as he reconned at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those with them gathered together who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. 
But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled, he asked them. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and feet. But while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What we see in the text is Jesus, the pastor theologian, who not only pursues after his people who wander away, but also points to himself as the true hero of the scriptures. Notice how Jesus, the pastor theologian, shepherds his people with the Bible. I want you to notice first the Christ-centered interpretation of Old Testament texts. As Jesus is walking and talking to these two disciples down the Emmaus Road, he is interpreting the Old Testament to them in light of himself. Jesus is teaching them the word of God and how it is pointing to him. Now, wouldn't this be an incredible small group? How phenomenal would it be where Jesus is the small group teacher? He is the one who is teaching the word. He's accurately dividing the, the word of truth. He's bringing perfect interpretation and application and inspiration to the listeners. In fact, we see Jesus here taking the word and pointing it to himself as the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament says. Look at verse 27. The text says, beginning with Moses. Now, what did Moses write? Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses revealed himself through these words in which he was writing the history and the law of how God began to call his people. But ultimately, Moses was pointing forward to a coming Messiah. The Lord said to Moses in Deuteronomy 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command him. I will hold accountable whoever does not listen to my words that he speaks in my name. You see, the Lord was already pointing forward to a prophet greater than Moses who would come and speak the very words of God. Now this is realized in Jesus who told the Pharisees in John 5, you pour over the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them and yet they testify about me. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. You see, Jesus interpreted the Old Testament and is saying, it's all about me. But it's not just Jesus who says this. We see this in John chapter 1 where Philip told his friend Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law. And so did the prophets, Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. In Acts 17, we see where Paul reasoned with them from the scriptures. Now, what scriptures was Paul reasoning from? The New Testament at this point had not been written. 
So Paul is using the scriptures of the Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi. And he's reasoning from the scriptures, Acts 17, explaining and proving that it is necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. In the book of Acts chapter 3, we see where Peter declared, in this way God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets that his Messiah would suffer. Now, this isn't just some of the prophets, not most of the prophets, not many of the prophets, but all of the prophets were predicting and pointing forward to this future Messiah who would come forward, and his name is Jesus. We see throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is the creator who sustains the universe by the word of his power. Jesus is the seed of the woman who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus is the true and greater Abraham who answers the call of God. And through him, he would create descendants who would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. We see that Jesus is the one who is the true and better Moses, who will lead God's people out of slavery and lead them into a true and better promised land. We see that Jesus is the true and better Noah who provides salvation through God's judgment, not through a wooden ark, but through a wooden cross. We see that Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is the perfect sacrifice as God's son on God's holy mountain. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is that perfect sacrifice and who is the one who will follow his father's lead. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who was betrayed and sold by those closest to him and provided salvation for God's people. We see that Jesus is the true and better Exodus, who frees us from our slavery to sin and death. Jesus is the true and better tabernacle, for he is the very presence of God who came and tabernacled among us. Jesus is the true and better curtain in the temple who was ripped and torn apart at the cross so that through him we have access to God. Jesus is the true and better mercy seat who provides forgiveness and atonement for sin through his shed blood on the cross. We see that Jesus is the true and better Job who suffers under God's hand and saves his friends. We see that Jesus is the true and better David who leads his fearful people into ultimate victory. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who risks his own life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who is three days in the belly of the earth, only to come back to life again. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament, we see glimpses, foreshadowings, and giddy anticipation for this coming Messiah. You see, the Bible's not a collection of Aesop's fables. It's not a gathering of moralistic principles or tips on how to be a better person. The Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is pointing to Jesus the Messiah, the true hero of Scripture. All of Scripture is pointing to Jesus, who is the true and better than every flawed leader who came before him and after him. So we, when we say the Scriptures, we do so in light of Jesus. You see, Jesus is not just the most important puzzle piece to the puzzle of Scripture. It's that when you look at the entire puzzle of Scripture, that's the face of Jesus. 
He is the one whom the entire scriptures are pointing to. Here he is, the pastor theologian, who is shepherding these two disciples back to himself with his word. As they're grieving, as they're mourning his death, as they are uncertain over the reality of his resurrection, Jesus is pointing them back to the law and the prophets and how they have declared there's a future redeemer who is coming and it's found in Jesus. You see, following Jesus means that we interpret scripture in the way he tells us to interpret it. You see, in Luke 24, Jesus is teaching hermeneutics. Jesus is teaching how to interpret the Bible. We don't read the Bible and assume it's about us. No, 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 no. You see, though the Bible is for us, it's not about us. The Bible is about Jesus. As we read and interpret the scriptures, we do so in light of this reality that it's all about the person and work of Jesus, which means Jesus is the hero of every sermon. And whether the text is Genesis or Exodus or Obadiah or Ephesians, Jesus is the one that we rally to. If someone preaches a message to you, if you're sitting in a class or you're reading a book in which you're the subject, you're the hero, you're the focus, turn it off, run away, because they've missed the point of the text. The sermon is not about the listener. The sermon is about Christ. For that's the point of the entire Bible, to exalt Christ, to point to Jesus and who he is and what he has come to accomplish for us, that he lived a perfect sinless life that we couldn't live, that he died the death that we deserved, that he rose again triumphantly over the grave, that he is soon returning to this earth to rescue his bride, the church. All of scripture is focused on him. And so we as a faith family continually look and fix our eyes not upon one another and certainly not upon ourselves. We look unto Jesus because it's all about him. So what we see in the text is Jesus is teaching us how to understand the Bible and we interpret the text in light of him. So we see the Christ-centered interpretation. But secondly, we see the heart-burning explanation of Old Testament texts. At the request of these two disciples, Jesus goes into town with them. He breaks bread with them, and after he prays the blessing on the food, immediately they recognized, oh my goodness, you're Jesus. You're the one we were talking about. You're Jesus. And then the text says that he disappears from their sight. Now remember, Jesus now has a resurrected body. He is the one who is physically defeated death. He is the one who is physically alive. There are some who would make the argument that the resurrection was a spiritual resurrection. No, that is not true. It's a physical bodily resurrection. You see, if Christ is not raised, then we are to be pitied more than among all men. We should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die if Christ is not raised. But Christ has been raised. He has physically defeated death. In fact, that's what's happening here in the text in Luke 24, in which he is presenting himself to the disciples, in which he is physically showing himself to them, and he is, verses 39 and 40, saying, come and see, come and touch my hands, come and touch my feet. We then see later on in verses 42 and 43 where he asks for something to eat. 
And he's saying, listen, a ghost is not someone who eats something. He is physically, bodily alive. And yet in his resurrected body, he is able to be transported from one location to another immediately. That's what's happening here. Jesus disappears from their sight in a single moment. But notice the impact that Jesus and his word are having on these two men. We see first that the impact was inward. It was inward. Look at how they describe what's happening internally in their hearts. Look at verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us? While he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us. Well, what made their hearts burn within them? Jesus explaining the text of scripture to them. You see, God the Holy Spirit was at work in them to hear the word explained to them. The seed of the word was falling on the good soil of their hearts. As Jesus taught them the Old Testament, they are beginning to understand a clearer picture of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. They're beginning to understand that the whole text of Scripture is pointing to Christ. Maybe Jesus began to tell the story of David and Goliath. Not a story in which you and I are like David who are seeking to defeat the giants in our life. The point of the text is that there's a shepherd king who goes and declares war and does battle against the enemy. And this shepherd king not only takes down this great giant and enemy, he takes him down with a slingshot and a stone and then takes a sword and cuts off his head. That text is pointing forward to a future shepherd king who would come and do battle against the enemy in which he would not only defeat him through a blood-stained cross, he would crush his head. Jesus is our shepherd king who has defeated the enemy for us on our behalf. Maybe Jesus was pointing back to the book of Exodus and when God appeared through the, through the burning bush to Moses and God gives the name, I am who I am. And Jesus says, that was me. I am the great I am who is revealing himself to his people. Maybe Jesus was pointing to Jonah, how he is the one who, just as Jonah was in the belly of the earth, uh, belly in the, of the whale, for, for, for the belly of the fish, I'll get it right in a minute, in the belly of the fish for three days and then spit out. Jesus was in the belly of the earth for three days and then spit out. He came back to life defeating death. Maybe Jesus on the Emmaus road is unpacking for them how he was the fourth one in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Maybe Jesus is pointing to Psalm 22 on how he is the fulfillment in which David said the Messiah would be pierced in his hands and in his feet. Maybe Jesus was pointing to Isaiah 53 and pointing to that text that he is the one who could be crushed by God. Maybe he was pointing to Psalm 16 in which the Holy One of God, when his body would not see decay. Indeed, he would defeat death. Jesus is unpacking the scriptures. He's taking the Old Testament and explaining it to these men. And we see the result is it leads to an internal impact. Their hearts burned within them with a holy passion for God and for his word. You see, a mark that you belong to Jesus is that a growing, you have a growing passion for Jesus and his word. Question, do you have a growing passion for Jesus and his word? 
Are you growing more in love with Christ? Are you growing in your desire to know him and follow him and obey him? Do you have a white hot passion to know Christ through his word? Or have you allowed your heart to be satisfied with temporary earthly things? Have you allowed the things of this earth to cause the things of God to grow strangely dim? Have you allowed a lukewarmness, an easygoing apathy towards the Lord and his word? If so, get on your face and cry out, God, would you stir within me a white hot passion for Christ and his word? Get on your face and pray and seek his face. Open his word and say, God, open my heart and my eyes to your word. May your word become sweeter than honey. May it become the deepest desire of my heart. Stoke the embers of your heart by asking the Spirit to work within you, to grow in the gospel, to have a holy passion for Christ and his word. See, as you grow more in love with Christ, you're going to begin to discover more and more of who he is. You know, there's this truth that God's been teaching me lately, and I'm still wrestling and seeking to understand the depth of, of what I'm learning here. But the reality is this, that those who want God the most get the most of God. And what I'm talking about is the more that you want him, the more there is of him. There, he, it's almost like if you went deep sea diving and you're dis discovering these incredible treasures the deeper you go into the ocean. But the farther you go down, the more you discover there is no bottom. God is an inexhaustible, never-ending, eternal being in which you are ever-increasing in joy and in love the deeper you grow in your knowledge of him. That the more you know him, the more you love him. Are you growing more in your knowledge of Jesus? And are you growing more in love with his word? Now make no mistake, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge can make us arrogant. And so yes, we are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. But that knowledge must lead to an even greater love and humility before the Savior you see, for these two men, they're hearing the word of God unpacked by Jesus and it's creating this inward burning within their hearts. Well, the second thing we see happening is that the impact was outward. The impact was outward. Did you see their response? Jesus' appearance and teaching to them, it compelled them to verse 33, get up and return to Jerusalem that very hour. You see, these, 11, these two disciples, they went and they found the 11 disciples. They, they made a beeline to Jerusalem and tell them, hey, the Lord has truly been raised. He has defeated death. He really is alive. We saw him. We ate with him. Man, we genuinely encountered the risen Christ. You see, as Jesus is unpacking the scriptures, as he's stirring their affections for himself and his word, their knee-jerk reaction is to make a beeline to Jerusalem. They have to go and tell what has happened, that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, and he has proven it over and over for them. On the Emmaus Road, they encountered the risen Christ, and they are never the same. You see, they can't wait to go and tell what Christ has done. Question, has Jesus changed your life? 
Has Jesus so grabbed hold of who you are that you are compelled to go and share the gospel and tell people that Christ is risen, God has defeated death, and so can you through faith in him. You see, this is the gospel that we rally around as believers, is that Jesus lived that perfect sinless life that we couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved on the cross. His blood was shed so that we can be forgiven. He gave his life on Calvary so that you can have eternal life. This is what God offers you in the gospel. That if today you turn from your sin and you trust in him by faith, God will receive you. He will accept you as his son, as his daughter. And the best news of all is that Jesus defeated death. Because he got up out of the grave on that third day, because he got up, death has been defeated. So now for those who've trusted in Christ, now the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life of Christ is applied to you. Now the goodness and the faithfulness of Christ now lives inside of you. God now treats you as a son, as a child who's been adopted into the family, that you have an inheritance. You are one who belongs to the king forever. This is the gospel. And because Jesus here appears to these two men, they realize who he is. The first thing they do is you can see an outward impact where they go and tell people. There's outward evidence that they have encountered the risen Christ. What about you? Is there outward evidence that you've encountered Christ? Has your life been changed by Jesus? Do you have a growing passion for him and for his word? Do you have a desire to go and tell people about who he is and what he's done? If that's not in your life, examine your heart, test your faith to see if you genuinely believe this gospel. Examine your heart. If you truly believe the gospel, it compels you to say, man, look what Christ has done. It's true, and this changes everything. Jesus changes the lives of these two disciples, and he is ready to change your life as well when you believe and trust in him. So in the text, we see the Christ-centered interpretation. We see, secondly, the heart-burning explanation. Thirdly, we see the mind-opening illumination of Old Testament text. After appearing to the disciples in the upper room, terrifying them with his presence, proving his resurrection by his words, his appearance, his touchability, as he's eating the food, as he's teaching how he's the fulfillment of the law and the prophets and the Psalms. Look at verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Jesus, very God of very God, is opening the minds of his followers to understand the scriptures. And if you are in Christ, the same is true for you. Jesus has opened your mind to understand the scriptures. In John chapters 14 through 17, Jesus teaches about the role of the Holy Spirit. That when you believe the gospel, when you trust it in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and he takes up residence in your life. That he gifts you with these gifts that you can use to serve the church. That he convicts you of sin, the Holy Spirit. He encourages you to walk in the truth. He guides you. He gives you wisdom. That the Spirit is at work within you. But the Spirit of truth, his job is also to illumine your mind, to help you understand the scriptures. 
This this week, I had this moment in which I was reading a text I've been very familiar with. I feel like I've read it a hundred times. But this week, I was like, oh my goodness, how have I missed this? Where did this come from? Has that ever happened for you? When you're reading your Bible and you discover something and you're like, where did that come from? I've never seen that before. Well, the Holy Spirit is illumining your mind. He's helping you to understand the text of Scripture. That's what Jesus is doing here in Luke 24. He is illuminating the disciples to give them the ability to understand the Old Testament. And if you are in Christ, God has done the same for you. He has enabled you to understand the word and see that it's pointing you, it's driving you to the person and work of Christ. That you would fall more in love with Christ. You'd fall more in love with his word. In fact, that's our impact point. The invitation I offer to you today is fall in love with the word of Christ. That the word of Jesus would so captivate your heart that you would follow him more passionately and more closely. That he would be everything to you. It was 1850 and a snowstorm fell upon England. Charles Spurgeon didn't know where to go for church because as he's walking the streets, the storm gets so bad, he just goes into a church building looking for reprieve from all of the snow outside. When he steps inside of this primitive Methodist church there's about eight people in the room the pastor didn't show up that day and this old man possibly a shopkeeper walks up to the pulpit with no sermon prepared he picks a passage of scripture from the prophet Isaiah and he says look all ye ends of the earth to the Lord and be ye saved And for 10 minutes, this old crotchety man is preaching the best that he knows how to take this text. And he looks at Charles Spurgeon and he points at him and says, young man, you look miserable. Indeed, Charles was miserable. And at the age of 16, Charles is challenged by this man who looks him square in the eye in which he says, young man, look, look, look to the Lord and be ye saved. And Spurgeon says it's in that moment that the clouds parted and his soul saw the sun. He fell in love with the Savior. And this nameless man whom no one knows his name here on earth, make no mistake, the Lord knows, he was used by God to take the word of God and implant it into the heart of this young man who would become one of the greatest preachers in church history. It's all because of someone who falls in love with the word of Christ. This pastor theologian who shepherds his people with his word and uses the word to drive his people towards himself. And that's what God has done for you. In the gospel, God has sent forth his son He has provided his word so that you might know and love and follow him. Your pastor, your shepherd, your theologian, King Jesus.